From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, October 5th. I'm Marco Werman. The FBI has finally made it to the crime scene where the U.S. ambassador to Libya was killed last month. We'll hear how the investigation's going. And later, a GOP push to convince Latinos in Nevada that President Obama is not their man. They know as much as uh, President Obama goes on TV and tells them how great things have become since he's been in president, nobody takes that seriously. Plus, a tainted meat scandal in Canada that could have consequences here. If you eat 100 hamburgers in a year, uh, chances are one of them came from this plant. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives, telling you who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their story. Revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It took three weeks, but FBI investigators finally made it to the crime scene in Benghazi, Libya, where Ambassador Chris Stevens and three other Americans were killed last month. President Obama has promised to bring those responsible to justice. The inquiry, though, has been hampered by security concerns. In a moment, we'll hear more on the Islamist militant group suspected of being behind the attack. First, we turn to Washington Post reporter Michael Birnbaum in Benghazi. He says the FBI team didn't stay long in the city. Well, they were here for less than 24 hours. They were here for about four and a half hours. And I have to imagine they weren't able to do much at the crime scene. I'm told by Libyan Interior Ministry officials that they stopped by the U.S. mission compound for just over an hour, running through it basically, taking a look and collecting some evidence, but not doing much. And after they visited that, they went to a local market that's called the Two Dinar Market. It's known for its cheap wares and stolen merchandise. So it sounds as though they were looking to see if any equipment or materials from the U.S. compound had turned up there. But they came in at about 2 o'clock p.m., according to the Libyans, and left at 6.30 p.m., so they really were not here long. I mean, this is a crime scene. Uh, You know, four Americans in the diplomatic service were were killed, a major fire, storming of of the mission there. Who is investigating it? There is a Libyan government investigation, but I've talked to many, many witnesses who've said they haven't been contacted either by the Americans or by Libyans. And the crime scene itself at the U.S. mission remains today unguarded. I just drove by it, in fact, an hour ago to take a look, and there's nobody there. Are there any theories at this point as to how Ambassador Chris Stevens was left alone at the mission with so little security? as though from documents that I found earlier in the week at the compound, that the Americans at the mission, the security office there, 
they were in the middle of working out some revised arrangement with the Libyan militia that had been providing the compound with security since the revolution last year. But they didn't have a large presence there. They had three armed guards, and there were a couple of unarmed contractors, several of whom had told me that they had shared security concerns with the Americans that very day, September 11th. From all accounts, Ambassador Chris Stevens was tremendously comfortable in Benghazi, maybe too comfortable. He spent a lot of time here during the revolution. He had lots of friends. And judging by his actions in the days leading up to the attack, he truly felt at home in this city. I think it, it sounds as though he had a false sense of security in Benghazi. Washington Post reporter Michael Birnbaum there speaking with us from Benghazi. U.S. officials suspect the attack against U.S. diplomats there was carried out by a militant group called Ansar al-Sharia. Financial Times correspondent Borzu Daragahi has been investigating the group. These are hardline uh, Salafist Islamists. Uh, That means they belong to a a school of Islamic thought that believes that Muslims should uh, live as the Prophet Muhammad and his companions lived in the 7th century. And they also are, uh, I I guess, what you would describe as jihadis. You know, they believe in uh, a militant jihad. They are very hardline in their their outlook. Um, I spoke to one uh, associate of the group who actually said that even Libyans who uh, don't uh, subscribe to uh, his uh, school of Islam must be uh, forced to uh, abide by the the pieces of the type of Islam he and his uh, followers espouse, because that's the way it is in the Quran, and if they don't like it, they can live in another country. And what's their relationship to the Arab Spring? Did they exist before the uprising in Libya, or are they a product of it? They did not. They did not exist before the uprising in in Libya, although many of their uh, members uh, took part in the uh, fight against Muammar Gaddafi last year. They formed uh, quite a bit after the uprising as a way of promoting a certain brand of politics. They wouldn't see it that way. They see themselves as, you know, warriors in in a good fight that, you know, sort of a continuum that started with the revolution. Now, tell us about what's happened to the group since uh, all these demonstrations in Benghazi uh, against the uh, so-called anti-Islamist video. They seem to have disbanded, right? Yeah, they actually voluntarily disbanded, very angry, very bitter about what happened, the feeling that they've been scapegoated. And they've gone underground. They've taken their weapons that included, you know, the standard issue uh, Kalashnikov that every Libyan seems to have, as well as more uh, medium and and heavy weapons, and they've disappeared with them. Authorities in uh, Libya are quite worried uh, right now because, you know, these guys were hardcore. They were quite scary. But at least before this uh, wave of uh, protests against the Islamists a couple weeks ago, people were keeping an eye on them. And now uh, no one's quite sure what happened to them and uh, what they're plotting. Does the government have a strategy on what to do now? You know, uh, Marco, when you talk about Libya right now, the the word government is a very loose term. They don't even have a government, much less a strategy. The country, thanks to Gaddafi in large part, does not have any real institutions. Law enforcement is not in Libya the, the, the way that we would think of law enforcement. For four decades, it served no one other than Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, when they talk about internal security, what they meant was protecting Muammar Gaddafi from internal threats. When they talked about external security, it was about uh, protecting Muammar Gaddafi from foreign threats. And so now they're building these institutions from scratch. Uh, And a lot of the people who are leading this effort are civilians who have no experience in terms of tracking and monitoring these types of groups. Borzudaragahi, the Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times.
Tomorrow marks 30 days until Election Day, and there's feverish campaigning going on in the swing states. In Nevada, there's a last-minute push to reach and register Latinos. They make up 27 percent of the state's population. President Obama has a big lead with Hispanic voters, but the Romney campaign is trying to cut into that, as the world's Jason Margolis reports. Drive a few miles northeast from the heart of the Las Vegas Strip, and you'll reach the Latino parts of Sin City. This is an area of Vegas most visitors don't see. Grocery stores, dry cleaners, and playgrounds. And now, sandwiched between stores at a strip mall, a Team Romney campaign office. How are you? Good, how are you doing? I stopped by to see the operation. A few people were milling about. The staffers were welcoming, but they needed clearance to speak with me. Standard procedure for a political campaign. They suggested I come back the next day. I left and spent some time in the neighborhood. I didn't meet many people who knew about the new Romney campaign office. Here's Blanca Gomez. I'm surprised they're opening it right now. The campaign's about to finish in less than a month. And now you're, you're in such desperate need to open an office? I, it's ridiculous to me. A poll released yesterday reflects this attitude. 78% of Nevada's Latinos favor Obama, while 17% prefer Romney. Fernando Romero is a board member with the local group Hispanics in Politics. He says Latinos heavily favor Obama in large part because of all the anti-immigrant rhetoric from Republican candidates during the primary debates. Every single one of them mentioned and brought up the subject of immigration, and it was harsh, it was cruel. How can that not energize a community? Romero said it's commendable that the Romney campaign is now opening an office in the heart of what he calls the barrio. But he says Romney won't connect with Latinos until he and his surrogates actually come talk to them on their turf. No, he's 100 percent right. That's Dan Burdish, past executive director of the Nevada Republican Party. If you're going to work for the Latino vote, you need to go to the Latinos. This week, Team Romney in Nevada brought in perhaps the biggest Latino name in Republican politics, Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Imagine for a moment if in the next couple of years Mitt Romney's elected president and the following things happen. Obamacare is repealed and replaced. Rubio delighted a crowd of several hundred. He spoke at a casino ballroom in the city of Henderson, about a 30-minute drive from Las Vegas. The crowd was overwhelmingly older and white. Our tax code is made simple and affordable. Besides 30 seconds of Spanish geared toward the Spanish-language news cameras, there was no nod to Latinos in Nevada. Blanca Robles was one of the few Latinos at the event. She says she wasn't disappointed that Rubio didn't address Hispanic voters more directly. He was speaking to all Americans. We're all Americans, you know, and that's the thing that I like also about Republicans. We don't try to segregate and divide. We are all Americans. She says she likes Mitt Romney because he favors a smaller government. I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the minority groups, especially the Latinos, you know, have kind of been... I hate to say it, but almost brainwashed into the Democratic Party as their party, when if they really analyze their views and their morals and their work habits, it really is more conservative towards the Republican Party. So why not have Senator Rubio come speak directly to Latinos? I posed that question to Elsa Barnhill, the director of Hispanic Outreach for the Romney campaign in Nevada. She's the woman I tried to speak with the day before at the campaign office in the Latino neighborhood. And we inquired about using a couple of facilities on the east side of town, but it wasn't able to happen. They were pre-booked. And as you can imagine with campaigns, things are at the very last minute. They don't give us a whole lot of notice, and we just kind of have to move quickly. So we did approach various locations, and we just weren't able to make something happen. She added that the last time Marco Rubio was in town, he did speak at a grade school in a Latino neighborhood. 
Problem was, many Latinos also showed up to protest his visit. There weren't any protesters on this day in Henderson. Barnhill went on to say that the Romney campaign has been going door-to-door delivering a pro-Romney, or anti-Obama, message to voters in Latino neighborhoods. Their focus? Jobs and the economy. You know, Hispanic voters, they know as much as uh, President Obama goes on TV and tells them how great things have become since he's been in president, nobody takes that seriously. I mean, not the person that doesn't have a job, certainly not the person who's lost their home in a foreclosure like has been the crisis here in Nevada. But David Damore, a political scientist at UNLV who conducted the recent poll about Latino voters in Nevada, says talking points that play well with white suburban voters aren't working with Latinos. Tax cuts, for instance, don't really resonate in the Latino community. The social issues don't really resonate as a political issue in, in, in the Latino community there. So there really isn't much of a message there besides the economy has been bad here and no, no clear path what we're going to do about it. DeMora's poll shows that more than three-quarters of Nevada's Latinos approve of the job Barack Obama is doing as president. Perhaps that's why the president feels comfortable talking directly to Latinos on their turf. Hello, Las Vegas! On Sunday evening, the president spoke at a high school in the heart of the Latino part of town. The hugely popular Mexican rock band Mana also played. More than 11,000 people showed up, some waiting five hours in the near 100-degree heat to get in. This is why I like coming to Vegas. Good weather and good people. Romney won't be able to match that enthusiasm among Nevada's Latinos. But David DeMore at UNLV says if Romney can peel away just 10 percent of Hispanic voters, that could make the difference in who wins Nevada. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. Hugo Chavez serenades supporters ahead of Sunday's vote in Venezuela. That's coming up next on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Venezuela's Hugo Chavez faces a big challenge in Sunday's presidential vote. Polls put his challenger, Enrique Capriles, within striking distance. That may be because many Venezuelans say that after 14 years, Chavez's government is incompetent and corrupt. John Otis has the story. Chavez sang patriotic songs Thursday before a massive crowd in Caracas. He's been known to give five-hour speeches. But Chavez has cancer and took the stage amid a nasty rainstorm. So he kept his remarks short. Still, he offered a stirring defense of his socialist revolution, which has been financed by oil profits. He said massive government spending on health, education, and nutrition programs had cut poverty in half. And he promised that if he wins another six-year term, he will eliminate both poverty and unemployment. Yet a growing number of Venezuelans has soured on the Chavez revolution. 
While the president has vastly expanded the federal government's powers, the government's failed to do much about everyday concerns like rampant street crime, high inflation, and power outages. One opposition stronghold is the western city of San Cristobal. It's long been ignored by politicians. In fact, the government's cavalier response to a collapsed bridge helped push some city residents into the Capriles camp. Four years ago, Chavez transferred bridge maintenance from the states to the federal government. Despite warnings that the San Cristobal Bridge had been damaged by a flood, Caracas took no action, and the bridge buckled in April. Today, government crews are repairing the span, but the resulting traffic jams are so bad that salesmen do brisk business hawking ice cream to exasperated motorists. Government inefficiency is one reason the construction industry is moving at half speed, according to Max Vasquez. Vasquez is an architect who's building an office complex in San Cristobal. He tells me that before breaking ground, he had to spend three years securing 42 separate building and environmental permits. He was constantly pressed for bribes. Then, the government nationalized the local cement company, which led to cement shortages. There's been delays in finding cement, and sometimes you can't find it. You have to wait until the shipment arrives in the city and such. Growing frustrations have provided the first realistic chance for the opposition to defeat Chavez. Capriles is only 40, but he's already served as mayor of a Caracas suburb, a governor, and president of the National Congress. His youthful vigor provides a sharp contrast to the sick and aging president. Capriles pledges to maintain some of the health and education programs that have been the key to Chavez's staying power. But rather than an ideological firebrand, Capriles presents himself as a pragmatic problem solver. I know that today the immense majority of Venezuelans are dissatisfied. And I know that the immense majority of Venezuelans know that we can do better. Although Chavez easily won the last three elections, the political landscape is shifting. Two years ago, opposition candidates received half of all the votes cast in the congressional elections. But here at Chavez campaign headquarters in San Cristobal, the president's supporters warn against reading too much into those results. Chavez himself has always proved to be an electoral juggernaut, and though the polls have tightened, most still show him in the lead. For the world, I'm John Otis in San Cristobal, Venezuela. If you've been following the news in Canada recently, you've heard about the bad meat scandal up there. A beef processing plant in Alberta has been shut down and nearly 2,000 beef products have been recalled. The reason? Beef from the plant was linked to consumers getting sick from E. coli bacteria. E. coli infection can lead to illness, permanent kidney damage, and in some cases death. Oh, and there's an American connection, too. Some of the beef from the tainted XL Foods processing plant in Alberta was destined for export to the United States. The CBC's Aaron Collins is in Brooks, Alberta, and he's been following the story. Tell us what happened to this meat headed for the U.S. from the XL plant in Alberta, Aaron. 
The story sort of got rolling uh, early last month. And what we hear from officials up here from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is that two simultaneous tests happened, one from the USDA, one from the CFIA, and both found E. coli in meat from the XL plant. There were uh, some subsequent positive tests. The USDA asked that no further shipments from XL meats would be allowed to cross into the United States, and uh, the plant and the CFIA complied with that. So the beef uh, has been recalled. We're talking 2,000 beef products. What are we talking about here? I think of beef as a steak. I mean, we're talking beef products. What is that? The number keeps inching higher. I think we're, we're closer to 3,000 uh, products right now. And what you have to understand about what XL Foods does is they're not a brand name product of anything. What they are is uh, one of the major processing plants. You know, you might call it a slaughterhouse. They process about a third of the beef in Canada. So meat from the XL Foods processing plant here in Brooks turns up on all sorts of shelves under all sorts of names. So that's why you see that number being so high. Right. But a third of the beef sold in Canada, I mean, and nearly two weeks left on the shelves. How many people then are are believed to be sick from E. coli? We have only, and this is going to sound like an incredibly small number, we have only four confirmed cases that were directly tied to meat from XL Foods. And that all involves sort of one batch of steaks that were consumed, I believe, in Edmonton, Alberta. So it's not so much that the amount of sickness is huge. It's that the questions surrounding this this are, why did it take so long for this recall to be put into effect? And, and why is this sort of lag time there? Now, if a third of all the beef in Canada is, is coming out of this XL plant in, in Alberta, how much Canadian beef overall ends up in American supermarkets? Do you know? It's hard to get exact numbers, but basically, you know, around 80 percent of Canadian beef exports head to the U.S. So you can extrapolate from the number if, if a third of Canadian beef comes from this plant. Well, probably a third of those exports generally goes south. Now, mm-hmm. what that means to American consumers is about 3% of the beef consumed in the U.S. Uh, comes from Canada. Gotcha. So about I would say about 1% of the beef consumed in the U.S. probably comes from this plant. So if you eat 100 hamburgers in a year, chances are one of them came from this plant. So, Aaron, what happens now? I mean, I, I presume this plant is closed, but for how long? And are there going to be any lawsuits against uh, the XL company? There is a lawsuit, a class action suit that's been launched. As far as when the actual plant is going to open, difficult to say. And that's an important question for the folks here in Brooks, Alberta, because it's an interesting community where most of the folks that have been brought in to work in this food processing plant are their new Canadians. They're from the Sudan, they're from Somalia, they're from outside of Canada. And many of them are sort of, you know, a little bit uh, unclear about what their future holds. When are they going to get back to work? It's certainly a, a difficult place for them to be in. The CBC's Aaron Collins in Brooks, Alberta, speaking with us about the recent scandal of tainted meat there. Aaron, thank you very much. You bet. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Iran's currency plummets, and Iranians start hoarding hard currency in, you guessed it, their mattresses. Also, South Africa's mining strike spread to other economic sectors. We are in a two-week trike driver strike, and some of the uh, fuel stations are beginning to run dry. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. 
Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Big news out of South Africa today. After weeks of striking, higher backs, then not hiring back, and more strikes, the world's largest platinum producer, Anglo-American Platinum, pulled the big plug. Today, the company fired 12,000 workers who were taking part in a three-week-old strike. Wildcat strikes have been spreading across South Africa since August when police shot and killed 34 striking miners in Maracana. Milton Nkosi reports for the BBC. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa now, but he's been on the story since it began. And Milton, uh, it all began in August, as we said, when uh, police shot and killed those striking miners. What's been the story since then? Well, what's happened since then is that the miners at Marikana, the survivors and all those who were striking for a wage increase in August following the massacre, got a pay rise of 22%. Now, the inflation in South Africa, which a lot of employers are using as an annual pay rise, is 5%. And because of that massacre, the managers at Lonmin Platinum, the third largest platinum producer, decided that they would rather just give in to the miners' demands and continue with their production. And because of that decision, the other mines decided that they will go on strike and they will also demand around 20% increase. That's what has happened since the Marikana massacre, Marco. This has got to be a a shocking bit of news for those miners and their families. I mean, tens of thousands of families in the region uh, and many more people are going to be affected by this. Yes, indeed, because these strikes have actually happened outside the official collective bargaining chamber process. What has happened is that a few months ago, the unions in the mines negotiated a 10% pay rise with the employers for two years. Now, what has happened is that in the middle of this deal, this is what is happening. And it strikes season in South Africa. It's not just in the mines. Uh, we are in a two-week trike driver strike, and some of the uh, fuel stations are beginning to run dry because some of the uh, fuel truck drivers have been on strike demanding a higher wage increase. Now, this will certainly add on the unemployment rate of South Africa, which is at approximately 25%. And that will put President Jacob Zuma's administration under pressure. Milton, you've been traveling across South Africa, staying on top of of the story and all these strikes. What's the mood right now? I mean, what's going on in that country? It just feels like it's a different place from here. Well, South Africans, as you would recall, Marco, are still fresh, historically speaking, from apartheid. And uh, 18 years into this democratic system, uh, the fundamental issues that have plagued the country for centuries in essence, are still there. You still have a very large section of this country which is uneducated and poor. And you have a very tiny minority, largely white, who control the levers of power. And the difficulty for the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's party, which delivered the democracy into South Africa, are actually trying very hard to have a slow 
changeover process. Mm. Whereas if you follow the Zimbabwe situation, you, you would actually create bigger problems. Now they're caught between a rock and a hard place because they've gone the slow route and people have become impatient. And if they go the fast track route, that is a recipe for disaster in itself, as we've seen elsewhere on the continent. Now, that is what really South Africa is dealing with now. As for today's news, Milton, 12,000 people sacked in one fell swoop. Uh, How is this playing out in the South African media? People are shocked and they are bewildered, as they were in August during the massacre. They could not believe the announcement made by Anglo Platinum. What the Chamber of Mines has said, and President Jacob Zuma addressed them last night, is that they cannot allow a situation of anarchy, where miners leave the negotiation chamber, the collective bargaining process, through the unions, and they go individually to the employers, and then they strike, they become violent, and they intimidated those who want to go to work. So President Zuma said that cannot be allowed in a constitutional democracy. And uh, as a result, uh, the company decided to take on these steps because they know government is behind them on the issue of discipline alone. The BBC's Milton and Cozy speaking with us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Thanks very much, Milton. Cheers, Economic troubles are creating a headache for another president, the president of Iran. Protesters there have been voicing their anger at Mahmoud Ahmadinejad over the plummeting value of Iran's currency. The rial's value against the U.S. dollar has dropped by one-third in just 10 days. And in Tehran, that's caused unrest among shopkeepers and money changers. Many Iranians are busily trying to figure out what more stable currency to convert their rials into. An advisor to Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei lays the blame at an international conspiracy, he says, against Iran's foreign currency and gold markets. Ali Dadpe is an Iranian economist at Clayton State University in Atlanta. So first things first, Ali, you visit Iran frequently. Uh, Tell us the last time you were there and what the exchange was uh, at the time, the exchange rate. I think last time I was there, uh, it was early June. I believe it was around 19,000 to 20,000 reals per dollar. 19 to 20,000 reals to the dollar. And what is it today? It is the last time I checked it reached 40,000 reals. All right. So by recognizing the real as in free fall, is the government putting itself in a politically precarious position? Definitely its economic policies are being criticized severely. But I think that uh, politically they are not worse off than... 10 days ago. What happened 10 days ago that prompted this free fall? I kind of think that there was a sudden realization for many people that uh, real going to lose value and dollar going to be a good asset to have. I talked to several of my friends and they said that a lot of people just grab whatever cash they had and they ran to the currency exchange stores to change it to dollar. Iranians save in many durable products, gold coins, cars, Persian rugs, and hard currency to buy themselves insurance against inflation. So this was kind of predictable that when they see dollar is gaining value, suddenly it becomes a good asset, it's good to invest in it, and they go buy for it. So I think it was kind of a bubble demand in these past 10 days.
What do Iranians do with their dollars and their gold coins? They're not putting them in banks. Are private banks popping up? Or? Oh, well, deposit box is always a good uh, source. Uh, a lot of Iranians keep their money in the deposit box in the banks or save them beneath the mattress the old-fashioned way. Like, for example, your son is getting married today, this month, and you need money. You grab the gold coin or dollar or any hard currency you have and exchange it into real, and you pay for that expense then. The point is that these are things that will keep their value. So your real purchasing power wouldn't decline. That's one of the things Iranians always did and always do and always will do. So part of this was a prophecy that kind of fulfilled itself. What is the direct impact of of the recent sanctions against Iran, specifically on on oil revenue and, and how it's affecting the real? Well, the thing is that Iran is still selling its oil, but the sanctions increase the transaction cost and the accessibility of those oil revenues. So if you sell a barrel of oil before it was easy, you wire money back to Tehran, Tehran Central Bank would give it to the local banks and economic cycle would have continued. But right now, it's difficult to bring that money inside the country and the transaction cost is increasing. And remember, there are many large Iranian communities outside Iran and they do a lot of financial transaction with home and they are using these currency exchanges these days, which means that it's more difficult for them to do it. Is there anything Iran's government can do, is going to do to prop up the real? Well, I think they're going to inject some valuable dollar into the market, try to bring it back. They're going to kind of inject a sense of reliability. I think kind of risk increase with the talk of war and all of these sanction talks and everybody speaks about attacking Iran. So I think they're going to try to restore confidence in people. No matter what your political affiliation, nobody likes uncertainty, especially in the economy. We want to know what happens next. Ali Dadpei is Iranian. He's an economist, and he teaches at Clayton State University in Atlanta. Professor Dadpei, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Marco, for your time. Next week on The World, we're going to hear an interesting twist on Iran and U.S. efforts to stop the country from developing nuclear weapons. We'll hear from Evan Thomas, author of a new biography of President Dwight Eisenhower. He says Ike would have some advice for President Obama regarding Iran. I think Ike, if he was alive, would have been furiously doing covert action. The CIA would be all over Iran. For more of Evan Thomas's thoughts on what Eisenhower would do about Iran today, head to theworld.org. We go next to Morocco. This week, a yacht that had docked in the port of Smir in northern Morocco was escorted out of the port by authorities. The vessel's private owners had rented it out to a Dutch abortion rights organization called Women on Waves. Abortion is illegal in Morocco, so the group wanted to use the yacht to run an abortion information campaign, raising a banner with a hotline number women could call. It's run similar stealth operations in European countries from Poland to Portugal, A local women's rights group had invited women on ways to do the same in Morocco. Rebecca Gompertz is the director of Women on Ways. She says she didn't expect the ship to be evicted. The yacht was brought in by the owners, who are private yacht owners. And we rented it from the moment that the campaign started, which was two days ago. And we had planned to sail out and to sail in with the banners. But when we saw that the whole harbor was sealed off, we understood that we could not actually... Come in. So in other so words, you, you came into the port as a private yacht, correct? 
Yes, we came, but it is a private yacht. It right. is a it's a it's a private yacht. But it's also um, a private and, yacht with a clear mission that uh, it sounds like the Moroccan government doesn't really want. But we are not doing anything in Morocco which is breaking the law. We don't have to ask any special permission because when we are in Morocco, we are not doing anything medical. We are just expressing our, our opinion on the fact that abortion needs to be legalized in Morocco, and we are calling attention. For the suffering of women here in Morocco, there's every day there's six to eight hundred women here in Morocco that need an abortion. That's three hundred thousand per year. Where do you get those numbers from? These are numbers from the Moroccan Health Ministry. Okay. And because women cannot access safe abortion, they have to risk their health and their lives. And as a result, ninety women die every year. And apparently, the 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 banner that you unfurled has a hotline number on it, and Moroccan women were calling that. And it sounds like a lot of people called. Uh, for yeah. your services. But what, but what the hotline number gives actually is information for women that uh, they can buy a medicine here in Morocco, which is called Artrotec, and it contains misoprostol, and they can do a safe abortion themselves at home. Right. This, is a, this is a pharmaceutical that induces abortion after uh, six weeks? You can use it until 12 weeks, safely at home. It's a World Health Organization essential medicine and it has been researched very very extensively it's very safe to do women can do it at home it's like inducing a miscarriage there's clearly a demand in morocco for your services but without disclosing in advance what you were planning to do isn't that kind of deception inviting controversy well it's a, like a horse of troy it's a strategy a trojan we horse knew that we because the ship can only help a symbolic number of women when it leaves there's still women that need abortion services. So what we wanted to do with the yacht is actually also launch the hotline. And this hotline is a permanent solution for women here in Morocco until the law is legalized. Uh, Ms. Gompertz, where is the ship now and what's going to happen next? Okay, so the ship is now in uh, Ceuta, which is a Spanish enclave north of Morocco. It's actually only three kilometers from here. It's very close. But I think for us, the main aim of the action was to make sure that women have access to information. So in that sense, for us, the campaign was very successful. And we have been considering whether the ship should come back, but we don't think it will add anything to this situation. Rebecca Gompertz, Director of Women on Wave, speaking with us from Smear, Morocco. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're headed to a different sea now, the Caribbean Sea, for today's GeoQuiz. You may have heard that today is Global Bond Day. It was 50 years ago that the James Bond movie Dr. No was released. And this tune, in a different version of course, made its debut. Dr. No was mainly set in Jamaica. That's also where the Scatolites, the band you're listening to, are from. For the GeoQuiz, we're looking for another Caribbean island, one that played a central role in the composition of this tune. Your clue, this island is a setting for Nobel laureate V.S. Naipaul's novel, A House for Mr. Biswas. We'll be back with the answer in a couple of minutes. And to check out the Scatolites performing the James Bond theme in concert, you can go to theworld.org. There are more ways than ever to keep up with the world. Stop by and see us at theworld.org. That's where you can find our videos and slideshows. 
It's also where you can subscribe to our daily and weekly podcasts. While you're there, join the conversation by adding your thoughts to any of our stories. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRITheWorld or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates from the show throughout the day. We tweet at PRITheWorld. I tweet at Marco Werman. And again, you can find all those links at theworld.org. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives, telling you who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Monty Norman, he's the man who composed the James Bond theme. I don't even need to play it to get you going. You know, I can do it all in my mouth. We all think we know what the tune signifies. Edgy, classy, secret, dangerous even. But Monty Norman composed it to suggest something very different. It came about from a stage musical, which we abandoned. It was supposed to be the follow-up to Irma La Douce, which we wrote and was a big, big hit. And we used V.S. Naipaul's A House for Mr. Biswas. A House for Mr. Biswas was set in Trinidad, which, by the way, is the answer to our geo-quiz. And nearly all the characters in the novel are of South Asian descent. Norman and his librettist wrote the musical, but then... We suddenly realized, by the time we were finished, that there is no chance of getting an all-West Indian-Asian cast... That's at the end of the 50s, beginning of 60s. So we abandoned it. And there was one number in it that I liked very much, put it in my bottom drawer and sort of didn't think about it. Until Norman was commissioned to write a theme for the James Bond movie Dr. No. Then it came back to him. Originally, it had a very Asian quality. It started, um, I was born with this unlucky... And you see, you can hear that. Then came the breakthrough. Norman kept the melody but split the musical notes for a more staccato feel. And the moment I did dum da dee dum 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 I thought, my God, that's it. Okay, we had to play it. The producers liked this new take on the tune, and so did Sean Connery. He seemed to like it very much. I mean, when you see the film and the camera pans up to Sean's face, and he says, Bond, James Bond. From that moment onwards, Sean Connery became a star. The James Bond theme, which was behind him, was imprinted in people's minds, and the whole James Bond franchise was up and running. There it is, our global Bond Day tribute to theme composer Monty Norman. Let's leave the martini on the table now and pick up a glass of sangria instead as we head to Barcelona for our musical closer. The name of the band is Jarabe de Palo. They're one of Spain's most successful rock bands and have been for a while. Back in 1996, they scored a huge international hit with this tune called La Flaca. En la vida conocí, 
ser igual a la flaca Coral negro de La Habana Tremendísima mulata en libras de piel y hueso 40 kilos de salsa Y en la cara dos soles Que sin palabras hablan Arabe de Palo recorded a new version of the song. It's part of the band's album Orquesta Reciclando, which is full of new versions of vintage Arabe de Palo tunes. We'll hear some of that in a moment after I introduce you to band frontman Pau Dones. I like to say that we are um, an international band. <laughs> right. Now, when I first started... With, with humility. <laughs> no, with all, all, humility, eh? I totally <laughs> understand, yes. We, we take it with a dose of humility. When I first started listening to Harabe de Palo, uh, I don't know, it was like 2005 or so, there was a real hip-hop element to it. Now you've got this new album out called Orquesta Reciclando, or Recycled yeah. Orchestra, where you've taken old songs and you've re-recorded them. Tell us what, what you're doing uh, on this album. Yeah, well, the idea was uh, songs are like wine. You can drink a wine, a uh, young wine, and and it's okay. But if you drink this wine ten years after, maybe it's it's better. No, with song is the same. We compose a song and then we record the songs at the studio. But there's no time to let them grow up. So we did this exercise, and and it was very funny, and the result is, was very good. And that's why at the end of this tour, we we recorded the album. Por un beso de la flaca. One of your big hits is called La Flaca, and I know it as yeah. kind of a very energetic hip-hop kind of thing. And it, I, I heard it and was like, what happened to the song? What did you do to it? Tell us. Now we are working in, in a more rock um, way, but till now we have been doing this uh, mestizo rock, mixing our rock uh, feeling with Cuban music, with Brazilian music, even with flamenco. So I think that led us to arrive to, to, to the heart of, of all these people that, that suddenly um, made us popular, no? You've gone in that direction with a number of of collaborators, and if I look at the names, mm-hmm. they, they seem like unlikely collaborators. Uh, Pavarotti, uh, Chrissy mm-hmm. Hind of the Pretenders, I guess, brings yeah. the rock element in. But w- w- yeah. what do you look for when you, you want to sit down with uh, with an artist and, and perform with them in the studio? Uh, the most important thing, quality. I, I don't mind if they are so famous, they, if they are English or, or Latino, or Celia Cruz, or Ricky Martin, or all these guys. At the end, for me... We are musicians and, and we have ideas, so why not to share these ideas in between us? No? Now, you mentioned uh, Celia Cruz, with whom uh, you've collaborated, mm-hmm. uh, the late yeah. Celia Cruz. Uh, on this album, there's a song called Dos Dias en la Vida, and I believe it's yeah. dedicated to Celia Cruz. Yeah, more than dedicated, I, I wrote this song for her, so she recorded the, the song in, in a very Cuban way. Uh, and I think it's the the best version of the song. And then we recorded the the song again, in our style. No? But we had a very nice relation. She was like our grandmommy in 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 America. No? Well, it, it's a beautiful song, beautiful rendition, and we'll go out Thank with you. it today. Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, the song is Dos Dias en la Vida, written for Celia Cruz by Harabe de Palo from Spain. Padones, the frontman for Harabe de Palo. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks. El segundo de sus días Fue justo el que te perdí 
se fue tu cara bonita eh, y mis ganas de vivir se acabaron las mentiras y de todo aprendí que hay dos días en la vida para los que no nací That's our global hit today, and by the way, our music segment gets the video treatment tonight. That's on the PBS series Soundtracks, which I also host. Tonight we feature Icelandic pop stars of Monsters and Men, plus Julie Fowlis and her musical advocacy for the disappearing language she speaks in Scotland, plus Yusu Endur and his bid to become president of Senegal, and Wynton Marsalis, the jazz educator. We've got more info at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. The world comes to you from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, Supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming, contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI, Public Radio International.